Welcome. You're listening to a podcast by the International Bolshevik Tendency, a Marxist organization fighting for international working class revolution to overthrow global capitalism. We can be found online at bolshevik.org, on Facebook at Bolsheviks, on Twitter and YouTube at IBT1917, and Instagram at Bolsheviks1917. This talk is entitled Trotsky on Permanent Revolution. It was originally delivered at an online IBT study class on 27 March 2022. Uh, the subject of today's class is Trotsky's theory of uh, theory and program of permanent revolution. I'll talk about permanent revolution, of course, and the related theory of combined and uneven development first in historical terms, and then in relation to his application today, briefly at the end. So let's start with this. What is the problem that permanent revolution is meant to solve? Although the term goes back to Marx and Engels, as we'll see, uh, the idea of the permanent revolution first really gets developed in relation to the pending revolution in Russia at the turn of the last century. And it has to do with the tasks of socialist revolutionaries in a country that did not fit the mold of advanced capitalism, but which nonetheless was ripe for a revolution. Even though czarist Russia was an imperialist country, it was also in important ways an economically underdeveloped country. So the theory of permanent revolution has tended to be used in discussions of uh, colonies and neo-colonies, though its application is broader than that. Tsarist Russia at the turn of the 20th century was a so-called backward country in which the vast mass of the population was agrarian, uh, employed in small-scale farming. While the abolition of serfdom in 1861 had liberated much of the rural population from servitude to the landowners, peasants were still obliged to reimburse their former landlords, and various forms of feudal surplus extraction remained. The Tsarist Empire openly identified as an autocracy, not a democracy, and political dissent was tightly curtailed. In addition to naked class exploitation was the national oppression enshrined in the Tsar's prison house of peoples, as Lenin called it. Over half the inhabitants were non-Russians, so Poles, Finns, Ukrainians, Azeris, Armenians, Georgians, and so on. While retaining elements of feudal society, Russia combined this backwardness with an exceptionally modern industrial sector, which was capable of producing a wide range of commodities and industrial products um, in textiles, um, also railway locomotives, armaments, and so on. And these competed with those of the more advanced great powers. In 1908, giant industrial enterprises, that is those employing uh, more than a thousand workers each, accounted for over 40% of all Russian workers. And in the industrial districts of St. Petersburg and Moscow, those numbers rose to 44 and 57% respectively, much higher uh, ratios than in the US, Britain, and Germany at the time, or since for that matter. Tsarist Russia was thus a kind of stark, uh, land of stark contradictions, it possessed one of the largest empires on earth, while at the same time it was a semi-client 
of Europe's more industrialized imperialist powers. Trotsky describes the uh, peculiarities of Russia's combined and uneven development in, in, in the opening chapter of his magisterial work, The History of the Russian Revolution. So I'm gonna quote from Trotsky a little bit here. He writes, the fundamental and most stable feature of Russian history is the slow tempo of her development with the economic backwardness, primitiveness of social forms and low level of culture resulting from it. A backward country assimilates the material and intellectual conquests of the advanced countries, but this does not mean that it follows them slavishly, reproduces all their stages of the past. The laws of history have nothing in common with a pedantic uh, schematism. Unevenness, the most general law of the historic process, reveals itself most sharply and complexly in the destiny of the backward countries. Under the whip of external necessity, their backwardness, their backward culture is compelled to make leaps. From the universal law of unevenness, thus derives another law, which for the lack of a better name, we may call the law of combined development, by which we mean a drawing together of the different stages of the journey, a combining of the separate steps, an amalgam of archaic with more contemporary forms. Without this law, to be taken, of course, in its whole material content, it is impossible to understand the history of Russia and indeed of any country of the second, third, or 10th cultural class. So instead of viewing Russian society as necessarily passing through separate stages of development, Trotsky saw that in reality, social development does not work that way for Russia or for any other country. In practice, Abstract stages are combined due to the unevenness of capitalist development on a global scale. So let's back up a bit and talk about Marx and Engels' view of the lessons of the 1848 revolutions in Europe, which saw the working class betrayed by the bourgeoisie, which according to a strict stagist conception should have wanted a democratic revolution. In March of 1850, Marx and Engels wrote an important address of the Central Committee to the Communist League, lucidly articulating the case for the political independence of the working class, not only from the bourgeoisie, but also from the petty bourgeoisie or petty bourgeois radical uh, democracy. The events of 1848 and afterwards, Marx and Engels argued, had definitively proved that the proletariat was the only consistently revolutionary class in modern society, and that it would come to power following a series of conflicts in a, quote, a protracted revolutionary development. And a quote from that, that address that they, they wrote. Uh, they write, while the democratic petty bourgeoisie want to bring the revolution to an end as quickly as possible, achieving at most the aims already mentioned, it is our interest that is the interest of revolutionary socialists and our task to make the revolution permanent until all the more or less propertied classes have been driven from their ruling positions, until the proletariat has conquered state power. Uh, and until the association of the proletarians has progressed sufficiently far, not only in one country, but in all the leading countries of the world, that competition between the proletarians of these countries ceases, and at least the decisive forces of production are concentrated in the hands of the workers. 
Our concern cannot simply be to modify private property, but to abolish it, not to hush up class antagonisms, but to abolish classes, not to improve the existing society, but to found a new one, unquote. So making the revolution permanent meant an uninterrupted series of revolutionary assaults to put the working class in power, uh, certainly across Europe and beyond, uh, and therefore clear the path to socialism. Despite Engels's later acknowledgement that this perspective was premature for that period, the assessment of the counter-revolutionary character of both bourgeois liberalism and petty bourgeois radical democracy proved to be entirely accurate. So Trotsky, looking ahead in future, Trotsky was proposing that even in backward Russia, the working class had to take the lead in the coming anti-Tsarist revolution, and that the result would be a socialist working class government. Let's focus on the 1905 revolution in Russia, as that was the event that led to the crystallization of the theory of permanent revolution and most clearly demarcated the different positions within the Russian socialist left. Opinion among Marxists was split during and after the 1905 revolution into three distinct views, the Menshevik, the Bolshevik, and Trotsky's, which was influenced by the Russian emigre theorist Parvis. All agreed that the Russian proletariat would have to play an important role in the coming revolution to overthrow the czarist autocracy, and that the social character of the revolution would be bourgeois insofar as it would have to establish democracy, destroy the remaining elements of feudalism, institute land reform, and recognize national rights. They differed over the questions of which social class or classes would lead the revolution and the social nature of the regime it would create, the new uh, government it would create. The Mencheviks concluded that the liberal bourgeoisie would have to play the leading role, and they expected it to follow the model of the 1789 revolution in France by convoking a constituent assembly and sweeping away the remnants of feudalism, opening the door to the political and economic modernization of Russia. After a long period of subsequent industrial capitalist development, they thought the social weight of the working class would grow while that of the petty bourgeois uh, peasantry uh, shrank, and eventually socialist revolution would be on the agenda. The Menshevik conception required that the working class represented by the Social Democratic Party would not enter into a revolutionary government, but instead serve as a kind of loyal opposition aiming to, uh, in the words of uh, Martinov, quote, uh, stir bourgeois democracy to political life, to push it forward and to radicalize bourgeois society, unquote. So in other words, to sort of goad on the bourgeoisie to uh, carry through with its tasks. Although they admitted the possibility that a European socialist revolution might create conditions in which the working class could take power in Russia even before a bourgeois revolution, uh, revolution 
In practice, the Mensheviks never had a view of a proletarian seizure of power because they didn't think that revolution in the West was likely in the immediate future. They thus sought to politically subordinate the working class in practice to the liberal bourgeoisie, although dressing it up in, in Marxist terminology. The Bolsheviks adopted a radically different perspective. They viewed the Russian bourgeoisie as counter-revolutionary, too connected to the aristocracy and too fearful of an agrarian peasant revolution and the independent actions of the working class to be capable of leading the bourgeois revolution. That task, therefore, would fall to the working class in alliance with the peasantry. Lenin captured this with the algebraic slogan of the democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and the peasantry, which is a mouthful, and I'm going to be repeating it. So I'm probably going to say the DD of the PP, so I don't have to say that, that long uh, expression over and over again. Uh, and this new kind of government, the DD of the PP, would uh, overthrow the old order, establish a republic, and bring in land reform. Acknowledging that the numerically dominant peasantry had no interest in creating socialism, the Bolsheviks knew that a democratic dictatorship with that class would not be of indefinite duration. Sooner rather than later, the working class would have to prepare to fight for its own independent interests through a socialist revolution. In two tactics of social democracy and the democratic revolution written in the summer of 1905, Lenin argued that the creation of the revolutionary DD of the PP in Russia, quote, will enable us to rouse Europe. After throwing off the yoke of the bourgeoisie, the socialist proletariat of Europe will in its turn help us to accomplish the socialist revolution, unquote. The interval between the bourgeois and the socialist revolution in Lenin's conception might be so short that it would constitute an uninterrupted quote unquote process akin to that sketched by Marx and Engels in 1850. Indeed, as E.H. Uh, e. Carr points out in his history of the Russian revolution, Lenin used the Russian word for uninterrupted, and I, I can't pronounce the word properly, but it's Nepronevaya, uh, which is interchangeable in this context with um, the word permanent. And he did so in an article in September, 1905. And I'm quoting here from Lenin. From the democratic revolution, we shall at once and precisely in accordance with the measure of our strength, the strength of the class conscious and organized proletariat begin to pass to the socialist revolution. We stand for uninterrupted revolution. We shall not stop halfway, unquote. In practice, the Bolsheviks' perspective was one of resolute hostility to all shades of liberalism, combined with the political preparation of the working class for socialist revolution. Okay, now into Trotsky's view. During 1905, Trotsky went beyond Parvis's initial projection of the possibility of the working class coming to power on its own at the head of the bourgeois revolution. Trotsky saw not only that the revolution would have to be made by the proletariat, but that once in power, the working class could not stop at solving the tasks of the bourgeois revolution. Instead, 
the socialist revolution would immediately grow out of the bourgeois revolution under these conditions. This theory of permanent revolution was superior to Lenin's perspective in two important respects. First, it obliterated any suggestion of different stages of the coming revolution by exposing the absurdity of what Trotsky called the bourgeois self-limitation by the proletariat once in power. In other words, the working class can't in reality limit itself to simply the tasks of the bourgeois revolution. It has to and will go beyond it. Second, Trotsky argued that the, the DD of the PP was an impossibility since the working class, having, having taken state power, would, as I mentioned, have to encroach on bourgeois property rights and exercise its own dictatorship if it was to survive. Trotsky believed that any elements of the petty bourgeoisie, including the peasantry, that participated in the revolutionary regime would do so on the terms of the proletariat. Trotsky later summarized his theory as follows, and I quote again from Trotsky here. The complete victory of the democratic revolution in Russia is conceivable only in the form of the dictatorship of the proletariat leaning on the peasantry. The dictatorship of the proletariat, which would inevitably place on the order of the day, not only democratic, but socialistic tasks as well, would at the same time give a powerful impetus to the international socialist revolution. Only the victory of the proletariat in the West could protect Russia from bourgeois restoration and assure it the possibility of rounding out the establishment of socialism. And that's a quote from one of the two readings from today, the three concepts of the Russian revolution. So Trotsky's perspective paralleled Marx and Engels' observations regarding the inability of the bourgeoisie in mid 19th century Europe to mimic the French bourgeoisie of 1789. His theory of permanent revolution grew out of his analysis of the specifics of Russian uh, development, particularly the fact that the economic backwardness of the Tsarist empire compelled the state not only to promote domestic capitalist development, but also to uh, welcome economic penetration by the more advanced capitalist countries of Western Europe. So the initial elaboration of permanent revolution was thus grounded in Trotsky's understanding of the combined and uneven development of Russian capitalism. Later, in his analysis of revolutionary upheaval in China in the 1920s, Trotsky generalized his theory of permanent revolution to all so-called backward countries in the age of imperialism. That is, of course, the monopoly phase of capitalist development. As a generalized theory, therefore, permanent revolution is really a counterpart not only to the theory of combined and uneven development, but also to Lenin's theory of imperialism as well. By adopting Lenin's April theses in 1917, the Bolshevik party had abandoned the DD of the PP in practice in favor, in favor of a perspective that was functionally identical to that of Trotsky's permanent revolution. But no one, including Trotsky himself, had yet concluded that this experience 
would be applicable in colonial and semi-colonial countries where there had been no bourgeois democratic revolution before. Now, let's jump ahead a couple of years to the early common term. The early communist international took great interest in attempting to forge close connections with anti-colonial movements. The common term declared that communists had the duty to support the revolutionary movement in the colonies, including bourgeois nationalist forces, while simultaneously promoting the victory of Soviet power. A resolution drafted by Lenin and approved by the Second Congress stated, I'm going to quote again, quote, the communist international should support bourgeois democratic national movements in colonial and backward countries, not only are only on condition that in these countries, the elements of future proletarian parties, which will be communist, not only in name, are brought together and trained to understand their special tasks. That is those of the struggle against the bourgeois democratic movements within their own nations. The communist international must enter into a temporary alliance with bourgeois democracy in the colonial and backward countries, but should not, not merge with it and should under all circumstances uphold the independence of the proletarian movement, even if it is in its most embryonic form. So that was the early common term. Uh, and the document is the theses on the national and colonial questions. This somewhat algebraic formula left open the possibility of various forms of collaboration with bourgeois forces in colonial countries, such as India or China. The theses on the Eastern question adopted by the fourth Congress in 1922 advocated a strategy of seeking to establish what they called anti-imperialist united fronts with all revolutionary elements in the colonial world, which hinted at a potential alliance with an anti-imperialist wing of the indigenous capitalist class in a given country. The ambiguities in the early communist international's attitude towards um, bourgeois nationalist forces in the colonial world turned to tragedy in China in the mid-1920s, where under Stalin's leadership, the Comintern resurrected the Menshevik theory of two-stage revolution, that is, in practice, political subordination to the bourgeoisie. In 1923, the Comintern had instructed the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, to fully enter the bourgeois nationalist Kuomintang, or KMT. Despite, or rather, describing the KMT as a workers and peasants party, the Kremlin sought to forge an, quote, anti-imperialist united front with General Chiang Kai-shek's um, forces in pursuit of a block of four classes, that is workers, uh, peasants, urban petty bourgeois, and the national bourgeoisie. To maintain such a block, it was important to suppress any issues likely to alienate the so-called anti-imperialist bourgeoisie. Inside the KMT, this translated into a policy of complete political subordination, as CCP members were instructed not to criticize the utopian reformist doctrines of Guomindang founder Sun Yat-sen. On May 30th, 1925, the Shanghai Municipal Police fired on demonstrators in the labor movement in which the CCP members played a leading role. Responded, um, 
And so this labor movement responded with a general strike that spread to Canton, present-day uh, Guangzhou, Hong Kong, and beyond. The strike wave alarmed the Guomindang's bourgeois leaders and threatened the stability of the so-called anti-imperialist alliance with the communists. Stalin signaled his desire to maintain friendly relations by accepting the Guomindang as a sympathizing section of the Comintern in early 1926, and in fact celebrating Chang as an honorary member. But Chang was not mollified. And in March of that year, 1926, as the strike continued, he raided strike headquarters, arrested CCP militants, and removed communists from key posts within the KMT. The CCP leadership proposed to respond to Chang's rightist coup by breaking with the Kuomintang, but Moscow insisted that the anti-imperialist United Front be maintained. Stalin betrayed the Chinese communists by ordering a so-called compromise with Chiang that involved providing the Guomindang with a list of all CCP members, as well as access to all Comintern CCP communications. In a speech in November, 1926, Stalin invoked the formula of the DD of the PP, explicitly rejected, of course, um, by Lenin in his April theses. A few months later, in March 1927, as Chang's army menaced the CCP stronghold of Shanghai, a demonstration of half a million workers turned into an insurrectionary general strike. Once again, the Kremlin ordered the CCP not to break the so-called anti-imperialist united front and demanded that the workers lay down their weapons. Whereupon, Chang entered Shanghai, declared martial law, and executed tens of thousands of leftists. Incredibly, Stalin characterized Chiang's coup as a victory that would, quote, strengthen and broaden the struggle against imperialism, claiming that the disaster in Shanghai heralded the beginning of a second stage of the revolution. Chinese communists were now instructed to rally to the so-called revolutionary left Kuomintang in Wuhan, which had fallen out with Chiang. But of course, the revolutionary Kuomintang soon turned on its would-be allies in the CCP before itself being liquidated by Chiang's right-wing forces. By December 1927, with the disastrous consequences of the KMT orientation evident to all, Stalin executed an abrupt left turn and ordered the CCP in Canton to attempt an ill-advised and unprepared insurrection that was doomed to defeat. At one time hegemonic within China's small but combative working class, the CCP never recovered in the urban centers from the disaster of 1927, and instead, under Mao Zedong's leadership, took refuge in the countryside and pursued a strategy of peasant-based guerrilla warfare. As early as 1923, Trotsky had opposed the CCP's um, Kuomintang entry, and his was the only dissenting vote when the issue arose in the Politburo. But Zinoviev, who had been chairman of the Comintern at the time and therefore shared responsibility for the entry, opposed the joint opposition of his and Trotsky's forces calling for an exit from the KMT. 
And Trotsky felt compelled to make this concession to Zinoviev to maintain the joint opposition. Later, Trotsky admitted he had made a mistake by submitting formally on this question. Trotsky made a similar compromise on the issue of permanent revolution and sought to downplay past differences with Lenin to undercut accusations of Trotskyism as a kind of distinct trend from Leninism. Trotsky's attempts to conciliate his bloc partners with Zinoviev proved futile. Soon after, the members of the joint opposition were expelled from the Communist Party, Zinoviev and Kamenev capitulated to Stalin in a vain attempt to regain their status in the party. And we know how that ended for them. Trotsky, however, stiffened his own resolve. He now drew the lesson of the Chinese tragedy and openly asserted that the decisive importance of maintaining the complete political independence of the working class from all wings of the bourgeoisie, that that was a fundamental aspect of revolutionary policy um, across the globe. He clearly assigned responsibility for the debacle to Stalin and Bukharin. And I'm gonna quote from Trotsky here again. Quote, the Chinese Communist Party entered a bourgeois party, the Guomindang, while the bourgeois character of this party was disguised by a charlatan philosophy about a workers and peasants party, and even about a party of four classes. The proletariat was thus deprived of its own party at a most critical period. The responsibility falls entirely on the ECCI, the executive of the Communist International, and Stalin, its inspirers. Never and under no circumstances may the party of the proletariat enter into a party of another class or merge with it organizationally. An absolutely independent party of the proletariat is a first and decisive condition for communist politics, unquote. Trotsky rejected any notion of a democratic dictatorship in favor of a strategy of permanent revolution, that is the struggle for the dictatorship of the proletariat, as applicable not just to Russia, but to the entire semi-colonial and colonial world. Again, I'm gonna quote from Trotsky here. With regard to countries with a belated bourgeois development, especially the colonial and semi-colonial countries, the theory of the permanent revolution signifies that the complete and genuine solution of their tasks of achieving democracy and national emancipation is conceivable only through the dictatorship of the proletariat as the leader of the subjugated nation, above all as peasant masses. Subsequent historical experience has vindicated Trotsky's analysis and repeatedly demonstrated that in countries with a so-called belated bourgeois development, that is neo-colonies, national independence from imperialist domination, agrarian revolution, that is distributing uh, land to the tillers, and political democracy must be linked to the fight for workers' power. Revolutionary struggles of the oppressed must either culminate in the dictatorship of the proletariat or succumb to defeat. And the victory of the working class cannot be consolidated and moved towards socialism unless it is extended to a global scale. 
so Stalin's theory of socialism in one country, for instance, is also counterposed to permanent revolution. Okay, so that's the historical part. I want to uh, move on to talk about some applications in more recent uh, times. There are many countries today that due to combined and, and uneven development are not characterized by advanced capitalist economies uh, or national independence or political democracy for that matter. The theory and program of permanent revolution argues that solving these problems is impossible under capitalism. The working class must take the lead of the oppressed masses and seize power. In doing so, it must begin the tasks of socialist reorganization and development, regardless of the level of the country. But finishing socialist construction is only possible on a global scale. Permanent revolution is thus a call not only to uh, fuse or telescope the democratic and socialist revolutions, but to extend the revolution to the entire planet. So I'd like to briefly cite two uh, relatively recent uh, cases to illustrate both the importance of permanent revolution and how reformist and centrist groups fail to apply it, even though they may call themselves Trotskyist. So let's start with uh, Venezuela. Under Hugo Chavez and then later Nicolas Maduro, the, Venezuela, the Venezuelan government, so since 1999 essentially, has sought to loosen its dependence on imperialism, initiate land reform, and use some of the country's wealth to improve living conditions while not overthrowing capitalism, and therefore also trying to line the pockets of uh, at least some elements of the ruling class. However, Fierce resistance from that ruling class, combined, of course, with meddling from Washington, set up real obstacles even to this reformist program. The so-called Bolivarian movement is not a proletarian socialist movement, and it certainly does not represent the independent organization of the working class, which is unfortunately uh, subordinated to a leadership that calls itself socialist and anti-imperialist, but works to contain struggle. Uh, to the confines of capitalism. Now, we've written at length on Venezuela, and I won't rehash all of that here. I would encourage comrades to go back and read what we've written on the subject. Um, perhaps we can put a link in the, in the chat uh, to one of uh, our articles on this. I do, however, want to highlight the orientation of one far-left group um, at the time, the IMT, the International Marxist Tendency of Alan Woods as it is indicative of how even self-described Trotskyists can adopt a Stalinist stagist conception, while, as self-described Trotskyists, cloaking their perspective in the garb of permanent revolution. For instance, following the December 2006 presidential election, Chavez launched a campaign to build a new party, PSUV, Chavez explicitly proposed it as a cross-class populist formation open to, and I'm gonna quote Chavez's own words here, the party would be open to quote, all revolutionaries, socialists and patriots, men and women, the Venezuelan youth. I invite the workers, housewives, professionals, and uh, technicians, nationalist businessmen to, pro to build a united political party. 
unquote. And indeed, the PSUV is a party qualitatively similar to the Chinese Guomindang. It is largely comprised of working people and peasants, with representation also for big capitalists. Alan Woods of the IMT, who advised Chavez, denounced, quote, sectarian clowns and halfwits, unquote, who dared to criticize the Bolivarian president. I'm going to quote Alan Woods in his typical uh, bluster. Uh, this is what Woods wrote at the time, speaking basically about people like us and others in Venezuela who didn't want to go along with this cross-class party. This is Woods, quote, these ladies and gentlemen are so blinded by their hatred of Chavez that they are no longer capable of understanding the difference between revolution and counter-revolution. This writes them off entirely as a progressive force, let alone a revolutionary one, but let the, bed, the dead bury their dead, unquote. The IMT, which did have some small influence within the workers' movement in Venezuela at the time, eagerly enlisted as official promoters, that was the title, the uh, promoters of the PSUV. Again, I'm, I'm quoting here from the IMT itself, quote, the task of revolutionary Marxists is to throw themselves completely in this fight and participate alongside the masses in the creation of the PSUV. Any other policy would be utter sectarianism and would only contribute to isolating them from the real existing revolutionary movement. In this respect, the policy adopted by a section of C-Cura, that was a trade union, um, uh, left-leaning trade, trade union current, uh, current that policy uh, of refusing to join the PSUV and attempting to set up a so-called independent workers party is a criminal mistake, which can only lead to the isolation of some advanced worker activists from the mass revolutionary movement, unquote. That was from the IMT's website, 5 September 2007. The IMT tended to paint Chavez as the embodiment of an objectively revolutionary dynamic who understands uh, the need to initiate a struggle to smash the state. By the way, the state that Chavez was the president of at the time. And this is what they wrote. Again, I'm quoting the IMT here. Chavez sees the need to deepen the revolution. He understands that the revolution cannot stand still. It must move on. He can see that every time he tries to push the process further, the bureaucracy, that is the, the government, the state, comes up with a thousand and one obstacles. He feels that he cannot make this state machine do what he wants. The only road is therefore to break this machine and build a new one based on the workers, unquote. So the IMT tried to paint its reformist support of Chavez and its assistance in channeling the working class into a cross-class party as actually some sort of application of permanent revolution. In reality, by treating revolution as a kind of unfolding objective process, the IMT turned permanent revolution on its head, that is, into a stagist conception that was in fact more in line with the view of Stalin or the Mensheviks before him, rather than Trotsky. Okay, so I want to now uh, very briefly talk about um, Ukraine today. 
Ukraine is a neo-colonial country with no real national independence. Its ruling class has historically, uh, over the past uh, 30 years, uh, been divided between an orientation to the West and one to Russia, though in what remains of the country, the tilt is now firmly to the West. In Western media, and even among some left groups, you will sometimes hear discussions about how imperialist Russia has violated the right of Ukraine to self-determination. And that's certainly true. But what is also true is that Ukraine will have no national independence or real democracy by allying with Western imperialism. Recall that not only did Washington back the 2014 Maidan coup with a leading role uh, played by outright fascists, but that the top US diplomat, uh, or I guess she was second at the time, uh, Victoria Newland, was caught on tape in a leaked phone conversation with the uh, ambassador choosing the country's government, right? So much for national independence and democracy. Recall also that in Ukraine, there are different nationalities, including Russian speakers, whose democratic national rights were severely curtailed by the NATO-backed government in Kiev. Under the imperialist system, Ukraine will have no self-determination, no equality of national rights, no true democracy, no real economic development, and no improvement to the living conditions of its population. What's needed is proletarian independence of all wings of the Ukrainian or from all uh, wings of the Ukrainian ruling class and an international workers party and struggle uniting workers in Russia, Ukraine, Eastern and Western Europe and beyond to overthrow capitalism and create the socialist United States of Europe. Workers in Russia must oppose their own imperialist rulers, just as workers in uh, NATO countries must agitate for the defeat of their own imperialist rulers as well. The main enemy, as always, is at home.